Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This week's podcast episode is sponsored by XL Moto, the one-stop motorcycle parts and gear shop. If you're looking for anything clothing related for motorbikes, parts related, servicing bits related, or any kind of tools, go and check them out. That's xlmoto.com. Okay, I've got... I've actually got quite a big chunk of things to get through, but just to give you an update on where I currently am at the moment, I have, with Monica, just moved from our first rental apartment that we stayed in for a month, and we're now in our final destination for the last 12 days of our stay in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. We're now bang in the town centre. We've got a one-bedroom apartment. It cost us for 12 nights... I think it was about £650, something like that. The pound's actually quite strong against the euro, so it's a better deal than I thought it would be. So loving it. Must make the most of our last 12 days here. I've now given back the Royal Enfield Scram 411 just yesterday morning. And I want to get to that in a second because I saw a very special bike. But before I do, there are two, two little bits of news that I want to share as the first bits. The first one... Um, Someone just shared this on Instagram, and I, uh, I found this quite interesting. BP has reported profits of $6.9 billion in the second quarter of this year. It's more than three times the amount it made in the same period last year. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's good to know. I, I, I don't understand really what's going on because I'm not... I'm not that politically aligned or, or motivated to follow too much politics. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe it's ridiculous that I don't follow it more than I do. But it's quite eye-opening that these big fuel companies are reporting record gains in terms of profits. And have a listen to this. This is another thing, actually. My dad sent me over this. 
This is from, oh, what's the paper he reads? I think it's The Telegraph. I just got a screenshot of this. Um, this is the title of this little section, Electric Slowcoach. Sir, I was amused by the feature of July the 23rd about the electric vehicle trip from Land's End, from Land's End to John O'Groats. And anyone who's not familiar with British geography, Land's End, Land's End is the furthest, the southernmost point, the southwesternmost point in England, and John O'Groats is the northernmost point in Scotland. So a lot of people so for kind of car test reviews and just fun challenges, we'll do Land's End to John O'Groats. It's effectively the furthest you can possibly do, furthest north to furthest south. I continue. Um, I, I was amused by the feature about the electric vehicle trip from Land's End to John O'Groats. In the white heat of modern technology, the vehicle averaged just under 10 miles per hour, and the overnight stays must have cost hundreds of pounds. In about 1902, an Owl Johnson two-cylinder dog cart with wooden wheels made the journey at an average speed of just under 15 miles an hour. Uh, this article just kind of showing that when you have to go and look for chargers and charge the vehicle and wait for the charging, it can take quite a long time if the infrastructure isn't there and if the fast charging infrastructure isn't there. So they averaged in an electric car going furthest north to further south in the UK, they averaged just under 10 miles an hour, which is slower than a vehicle in 1902 could actually manage. Uh, you know, we're getting there in the UK, but there's a long way to go. I saw a slightly scary stat. I can't remember the exact figure. But let's say, for example, if in the UK, you know, we say, wow, we're doing brilliantly with electric chargers. We've got 50,000 of them in the UK, as an example. But the reality of this is that only a certain percentage of those are fast chargers or super fast chargers because something that's classed as a fast charger still can only charge your car I think something like eight eight hours to charge a full car so a fast charger quote-unquote fast charger isn't actually remotely fast at all so really they're almost completely pointless fast chargers that the only important thing is how many super fast and how many ultra fast chargers there are because anything else is completely pointless being able to charge a car in a service station for eight hours. What on earth is the point of that? Completely pointless. It shouldn't even be in any spec sheets of how many charges a country has because eight hours is totally meaningless. Uh, that was quite fun. I liked that little article there from The Telegraph. Okay, right. Oh, I've got one more actually that kind of lead, leads on from this. This is just one more bit in the news I wanted to share. I'm just opening up the link now. In fact, Vilnius, while the link opens up, I've been quite impressed. Vilnius and Lithuania, they have quite a lot of electric cars here, and they do have a good chunk of electric chargers. I, I didn't know what to expect, but I've been pleasantly surprised. Uh, have a listen to this. This is in the Evening Standard. And I've just realised I'm giving you all awful news to start this, but I don't know why. It's just all come at once. I find this really interesting. Evening Standard. Fuel tax cut for UK drivers amongst, among the lowest in Europe. See, when I was in Tenerife, 
they were giving 20 cents a litre off. The government was effectively helping out. So in Tenerife, it was something like 100 cents a litre, incredibly good value for fuel. But you would get 20 cents off that. So a further 20 cents, it was incredible value. The UK is, is just, it's nothing. It's five cents a litre they've given. Absolutely nothing at all. Have a listen to this. Fuel tax cut for UK drivers amongst the lowest in Europe. The UK languishes near the bottom of rankings of European countries for action taken to ease the burden of high fuel prices. Only Luxembourg has done less than the UK government out of 13 European nations that have cut petrol taxes since prices began to soar in March, according to the RAC. The 5p per litre reduction implemented by the UK in March is dwarfed by fuel tax cuts enjoyed by drivers in such countries as Germany, 25 pence a litre, Italy, 21 pence a litre, Portugal, 16 pence a litre, the Netherlands, 14.7 pence a litre, and Ireland, 14.5 cents a litre. Governments in France and Spain have introduced discounts at four-court tills worth around 15 pence a litre and 17 pence a litre, respectively. You know, I saw another article where it, it said that... Uh, and. Please do bear with me here because I'm not politically aligned, so this isn't pro or, or against any specific party. But in the article it said that because prices of fuel are going up so much everywhere, let's say we used to pay 100 pence a litre in the UK, and let's say that the government takes roughly 50%. They take a 50% cut for taxes. So if we pay 100 pence a litre, or if a year ago we paid 100 pence a litre for fuel, the government would be taking 50 pence a litre for that. But, but now fuel prices have gone up so much, let's say to 180 pence a litre, instead of the government now taking 50 pence a litre from every individual like you and I, if it's 180 pence a litre, they will be taking 90 pence a litre in fuel duty. So they will quite close to being doubling the amount they're getting in taxes and duties in revenue from you and I paying this. So if they're getting an extra 80 pence a litre for every single litre we buy in the UK, and they're only, they're only willing to give us five pence a litre back, they're making huge amounts on, on what they used to be making because of the increased price of fuel. The government are winning in terms of how much they're getting in duty. So to give a five pence a litre uh, discount, well, it's still no discount at all. They're still gigantically up. I don't think they've, they've really done anything to help at all. I think it's a bit of an insult, but maybe I'm wrong. I welcome any thoughts on that. Um, if, if I get a, an interesting range of arguments for or against that, I will share those. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But it sounds... It sounds like an insult, the amount of extra money they're getting, and they've done very close to nothing, nothing with regards to fuel, at least, to help out. Let me know your thoughts. I move on. So I was at um, K-Moto in Vilnius. This is a, a dealership in the capital of Lithuania where they sell Royal Enfields, they sell some CM motos and a few other quad bikes and things like that. It's a really cool place. And they gave me a message. They sent me a message about 
a week ago, something like that. And they said, Freddie, we've got a 120th anniversary special edition Royal Enfield Continental. Now, I'll go into more details and I'll do a full show in next week's YouTube video, video. So I won't kind of go into too much detail about the bike. But in essence, extremely limited edition, only 480 made worldwide, only 120 came to Europe. And of those 120, it's 60 interceptors and 60 continentals. They are stunning. They're one of the nicest special edition motorbikes I've seen. They really are worth it. They may be a 2K premium, but my lord, they're worth it. The problem is, of course, they were hugely popular and they sold out incredibly quickly. Now, K-Moto have managed to get one of these bikes. It, is it for sale or not? You would have to go and find out. Um, I, I, these will not be changing hands easily at all. But the reason I wanted to mention it, yes, it's a lovely bike, but this is the real reason I wanted to mention it. Sometimes you can be in the right place at the right time. And if you get yourself into the right place, you really, if you can, you need to, you need to be able to understand that you're in a very special situation. If, if a, chance, a chance occurs that could be seemingly easy, you sometimes have to grab that opportunity. Because I shared a picture of this Royal Enfield Continental. GT650, 120th anniversary model. And I shared it on my Instagram stories and I said, wow, this is a very, very special bike and this is a serious collector's item. You have no idea how many people contacted me saying, Freddie, I've been trying to buy this bike. I've been trying to find it. I would give anything to be able to buy it. They are hot property. So, so many people saying that they would give anything to be able to buy the bike. And then a gentleman contacted me on, on Instagram. He said, Freddie, I've got one of these. And he said to me, I, I went in to buy an Interceptor, Royal Enfield Interceptor. Uh, and one of these was just casually for sale in a dealership. And I said, uh, well, can I, can I buy that one? Yeah, of course you can buy it. It's for sale. So he bought it, not remotely planning to buy it, not remotely having to do any kind of searching, investigating where to buy it, how special it would be. It was just right place, right time. And, and this happens in many things in life, whether it's a vehicle or a property. And sometimes it's hard to understand when a really good opportunity comes along because sometimes it just feels too easy. You know, that gentleman just popped in casually when there would have been hundreds of people probably desperately looking for where to buy one of these. And he just happened to chance upon one. These things happen all the time. Um, is it possible to really judge? How? How can you know what's going to end up being a special vehicle? You know, something, especially when it's brand new, it makes it extra difficult to really be able to gauge and understand. Look, am I onto a winner here? Is this something that could actually be a genuinely good investment as opposed to, no, I like motorbikes. No. But what if we want a little bit of money with that? What if we want some profit from it as well? Not just a love of motorbikes, but a love of a, a good deal. Can it be done? I tell you what I'm going to do. Royal Enfield. Let me just see. Royal Enfield, uh, 120th anniversary sale UK. Let me just see if there is one available right now. No, 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 no. No, not uh, to the very best of my knowledge, and I'm not surprised at all, no. No, they are going to be 
I mean, if, if you ever see one of these available, it would be my, my very strong advice. If you have the money, they're about 8K retail when they came out. I would guess they've gone up since then. If you can buy one of these, if you can get your hands on one, grab one. I can't believe I'm saying this. I wouldn't ride it. I'd just keep it as a collector's piece because it's a very, very special uh, motorbike that. Continuing on to the next piece. Um, this has been flagged up to me about 20 times this week. Royal Enfield Hunter 350. This is a new bike from Royal Enfield coming out. Um, it is a, it's got the 350cc engine, which is uh, extremely good. In my eyes, better than the 400cc engine, uh, better than 440cc engine. It's due to come out in India in August. And I just want to see if I can find something here. It's a bit like a, a street version of the Meteor. I guess you could think of it as a slightly more Bonneville-esque version of the Meteor. It's a very good looking bike. Classic Royal Enfield style, simple single headlamp at the front, really nice retro styling. It looks very, very appealing, very manageable, really nice bike to um, just to use and enjoy with the size of dimensions. Um, it's nice. It is a mix between the Interceptor and the Meteor. I think something right in the middle there. And I think, to the best of my knowledge, pricing will be... Is it three or four thousand? Let me just have a look. Uh, price prediction. I mean, everything that Royal Enfield do at the moment is, in my eyes, extremely good. Also, I had a, um, I was watching one of their their marketing, what do you call it, marketing campaigns. One of the the new promotional videos that Royal Enfield have done for their media. I was watching it on Instagram. They just capture the essence of biking, of motorbiking. For me, better than any other company. When I watch one of their, their videos, one of their marketing campaigns, it really makes me want to own and ride. Whether it's owning a Royal Enfield, but just riding in general, they capture that essence so, so beautifully. Uh, let's have a look, price prediction, UK. What is the price? See, all the prices at the moment are Hunter 350. I think all the prices at the moment are in Indian, the Indian currency. Let's have a look. Here we go. So released in August. It will have around 20 horsepower from the 350cc. Okay, I'll come back to you if I ever do find out what the price will be. It's either three and a half or four and a half thousand. What would be more realistic? Possibly three and a half thousand. Possibly, if it's that, I mean, that would be completely insane. Surely three and a half thousand. Could it be that? Interesting. Okay, um, I've got, after, after last week I was saying, uh, forget about carved bikes. They are a nightmare. Just you have no idea if the bike's actually going to start in the morning and they're just way, way too much hassle. Well, someone has come back with, with a comeback um, for carved bikes. So in the interest of fairness and level-headedness, have a listen to this, Freddie. A quick word about carved bikes. 
I commuted for two years on a Honda C90 and two years on a Honda XL600V. That's the Transalp. Oh, XL600V Transalp. He's written it here. Both of which are carburetted bikes and neither of which gave me a single issue with starting or running. The real problem with carburetors is that they're actually worse now than they used to be due to ethanol in the fuel. After as little as two weeks without running, the ethanol in modern fuels starts to absorb water and turns into a sort of jelly inside the carburetor float bowls. Then you go to start it up and the jets are clogged. This, in, this introduces awful starting issues and running issues. That's not really the carbs fault per se, as you can't even buy fuel without ethanol in the UK anymore. The surefire workaround is to just make sure to use E5 fuel instead of E10 and to start the bike at least once every two weeks. After I bought a car, I left the Transalp sat in the garage for about two to three months. Then I started it up and all of a sudden I had carb issues due to the fuel turning to goo. If anyone is going to buy a carbed bike, just take it down to a specialist and get the carbs cleaned and balanced. Then you're very likely to have... Uh, then you're very likely then you are very unlikely, not very likely, then you're very unlikely to have issues in the future. Sorry for my rant. Just thought carbs needed a fair defense as they aren't as crap as, <laughs> as, they aren't as, crap as some people think. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you, Chris, for that because, yeah, I, I, I'm probably guilty of that. Um, and I'm guilty of that, yet I have never once, and I've owned one two i've owned two carved bikes and not once have i ever bothered to get the carbs cleaned and balanced it's just a ridiculous attitude so i would have a carved bike it would always have starting issues yet i was too lazy to be bothered to go and get the carbs cleaned and balanced ridiculous and i'm sure there are a lot of people like me but it just shows you've got to look after your bike and it, it makes sense. I mean, especially with the Transalp, a bike that I, I really, really like. I got to test out in Tenerife. You know, it, these are incredibly reliable bikes and they're carved bikes. You know, these bikes will go on forever and ever. So there's nothing inherently wrong with carved bikes. But just as Chris said, newer fuel may have slightly changed things and probably people with a borderline bad attitude with regards maintenance like me may not be helping at all. I move on to John. Thank you, Chris. John. Um, Freddie, listening to your latest podcast on adventure bikes. This is where I, I was talking about a bike that won't break the bank, that I can enjoy on-roading, touring, a little bit of off-roading, just a bike that can be used for everything, just one bike for everything that won't break the bank. Uh, and John has come back to me with a bike that I've forgotten for some reason, I don't know why. The Moto Guzzi V85 TT. John, I, I like this. I like this so much. I'm just going to check, how are they doing used price-wise? because they weren't ridiculously expensive when brand new. So let's have a look and see what I can find on Autotrader. Motoguzzi, 
V85. Well, there are 44 available. How much can we get this, this very unique um, adventure bike for? Just under 8K. So uh, you can get a two-year-old one for £7,995. That's fair value, I think. I really like them. They may be a Moto Guzzi, so not the exact bike you'd expect to be able to rough up, but actually they've got a very, very rugged look to them. They're really stripped back, and the rear section of the bike is, is just looks like a steel, naked steel trellis frame, I think you'd call it. Really high front mudguard, high exhaust. I really like these. They're, they're a unique looking bike. Are they going to sell well? I, I'm, I'm unsure, I'm unsure. Not because it doesn't look like a good bike, but it's very, very different and Moto Guzzi's will never be the biggest seller. But I really like these. I would buy one hand on heart for myself. And at under 8K, I think that's a fairly good option. There is actually one here available with just 1,800 miles covered. It's a 2020 model. And this one comes with panniers. Uh, so you can buy one with Hepco and Becco pannier, Bec Hepco and Becker panniers attached and it's in a really beautiful uh, kind of dark metallic blue very very subtle really beautiful color and that's kitted out with a fly screen and panniers and that's 88,000 pounds and 8,044 pounds so just 44 pounds over 8k and with 79 horsepower I think that's an extremely good shout Consider that. I, I, would, I would recommend consider that if you're on the hunt for a do-it-all bike. It's a bike that will go under the radar with a lot of people. Not 100% sure why. Probably just Moto Guzzi will never be the biggest name in biking. But certainly, in my eyes, they're one of the coolest names in biking. Okay. This is the last bit for me. Um, the, the, the last kind of uh, part of this week's podcast episode. Uh, and it's, it's a slightly long one, broken into two sections. So I've got no idea how long this, this will last. Um, it just depends how carried away I get. <laughs> Have a listen to this. Okay, let me get myself prepared. Hi, Freddie. What, what struck me particularly while listening was uh, while listening to last week's podcast was the number of old uh, was the number of older bikes that you've been discussing that I have owned. Now I'm an old fart and have been biking nonstop since 1979, so it's not so it's probably not surprising. All of these bikes were bought and sold for between two thousand and three thousand five hundred pounds. Some broke even, but most yielded a profit. Most of the time I had two to three bikes in a garage and was patiently waiting for the right price. There were many other bikes not pictured. So I should just say this is from, let's have a look, just opening up my emails here. This is from Stephen. So Stephen has, has been a biker for 43 years, um, had a huge amount of bikes, often has multiple bikes, but always, always manages to, let me just check this, the figures, always manages to sell his bikes for between two and three thousand pounds. So, for example, if Stephen will see that one bike is hot property and he can make a profit on it, 
then it can be sold. But if you can see that the bike's dropped in value, then that's fine. Got a few bikes, I'll hold on to that bike. So two to three thousand pounds always his bikes have been sold for. At worst, breaking even, but most of them, most of them making a profit. Let me just give you a, uh, a little taster of what, of what he's had. Right, I've got pictures here of all of them. And this is one thing I should say. I never took a picture of my first ever bike, a Honda CB500F. I'm so, so annoyed at myself for not doing it. It seemed insignificant at the time, but I, I will say to everyone, take at least one picture of every bike you have because you may think, oh, it's not a special bike. But looking back, these are all special priceless memories. So make sure you grab pictures of your bike, save them to Dropbox, save them somewhere so you've always got those memories. I love looking back at pictures of my, my old bikes because there's so many stories with all of them just not just the bike, but from a moment of t in time. You know, I look, for example, at my Suzuki RF600 that I paid £790 for, and I sold it about half a year later for about £180. And I think, ah, yes, I was living in Greenwich at the time, and I was doing, I think I was just, just setting up my recruitment company at that time. Um, you know, everything, a bike will draw you back to a moment in time. So I can see here just so many bikes that I've tried. I can see uh, an old 1990s Honda Hornet. I can see a wow, really very nice old BMW GS, a Yamaha Virago. I think that's the 1100 uh, Suzuki Bandit, uh, Honda NCX, something like that, I think. Oh, just a great section. Even there's a Harley, Harley I think there's a Harley Sportster in there as well. Anyway, a great selection of different bikes. A lot of Japanese bikes in there. Um, in fact, quite a few nice BMWs. Lovely. I think there'll be an 1100 uh, BMW there. Yamaha FZR. They're really, really as 1980s as you can get with that purple and fluorescent green or that purple and green colouring that you always used to get on the tracksuits of the 1980s, very much of their day, uh, V-strums and things like that. So that just gives you an idea about the different bikes that Stevens had. So I'm getting back to Stevens' email now. Anywho, Freddie, uh, my first question is this. Do you think it's possible to do this in today's market? I.e., do you think it's possible to to never lose money on a bike that you buy. Of course, it's going to have to be a used bike for this to be possible. Uh, and going further than that, do you think it's possible to actually make money on bikes uh, in today's day and age? The best way I can have a look at this, because I've, my initial thought is absolutely, Stephen, it's still very, very much possible to be making money in today's day and age on bikes, or at least breaking even. And what I'm going to do now is a little test to see if I can prove my point. And I haven't hand on heart checked this yet, so I may embarrass myself. I am going to now check three, three bikes that I have owned in the past and see if they've gone up in value, or at least if I can break even from those. And I'm going to start off with a Suzuki Bandit 600. So Suzuki, it's a G, I think it's a GS, GSF. Let's have a look and see if I can find it. Suzuki GS, oh, GSR. 
shows how bad my knowledge is. Okay, let's have a look. Suzuki Bandit 6. I always get confused with these. They're never called the, the cool names. They've always got something else called GSF 600. Okay, that's it. Suzuki, so I'll go here. Suzuki GS. Ooh, now this is interesting. They may not have any Suzuki GSFs available at the moment. GS 600, oh, well, that's a shame. And that's, hmm, that's a bit of a surprise. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll type in just the word bandit there and let's see what comes up. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Okay, okay, right. I bought my Suzuki Bandit four years ago. Wow, four years ago. Bought it four years ago and I paid £830 for it. This was a 2002 Suzuki Bandit with 60,000 miles on the clock. Now the cheapest Suzuki Bandit that I can find, and this is the absolute truth, the cheapest Suzuki Bandit on Autotrader right now is £850, the cheapest. And that's with 32,000 miles, I admit the mileage is lower, but everyone knows Bandit's gone forever. You know, there's a Bandit here, 2004 model, 66,000 miles. It's the third one with plastic fairing, less desirable than my naked one. And that's £1,250. <sighs> okay, listen to this. This, it could even, could even be my old bike. No, surely not. This is exactly my bike. Okay, Steve and I have proven it. Uh, 2002 model Suzuki Bandit, exactly my color, electric blue. It is 2002, exactly my color. It's 61,000 miles on the clock, so almost bang on my mileage, and the price is 1,395 pounds. If I would have held on to my Suzuki Bandit, they are now getting more appealing than ever. I sold mine, of course, as I always do, right in the slump when they were almost worthless. And would you like to know the price I sold it for? I got conned so badly when I sold it, oh, it's painful. I think I, in fact, I know, I sold it for 200 pounds. I bought it for about 830 and I sold it about two years later for 200 pounds. I think the guy couldn't believe how thick I was when I was just, giving it away. The problem with me is I'm a desperate seller. When I want a new bike, I will advertise my current bike for sale for, let's say, I think the Bandit I put up for £1,000 and no one came to buy it. So then two days later, I said, sale was 1000 now 600 Still a day later, no one interested. I thought, okay, right, no one's going to buy it. And then £400 or nearest offer must go. And then people think, right, this guy is for some reason desperate to sell. Let's, let's take him for a ride and offer 200 and then I accept 200. So I could have, instead of selling for 200, sold it for 1,395 pounds. And let me just try one more. I'm going to try my, ooh, shall I do the Triumph Speed Triple? Or shall I do Honda CB500? I will do, let me just quickly check the Honda CB500. This could be interesting. So Honda, it's a CB500. There are 145 available. I bought it for 1,850 and I sold it for 1,200 pounds. Let me see if I can find one of these available. 
CB500. This is incredible, there are none available. They're all the newer models. How can such a popular bike not have any left? Okay, I will check. The final one will be my Triumph, because I know these so well. Triumph Speed Triple. Now this is a bike I bought, can't believe it, I bought it about seven years ago or something, and I had it for about four years. Triumph Speed Triple, it was a 2007 model, and it was all black. It was, for me, the, the nicest color combo. Gold forks, all black. Okay, Triumph Speed Triple, Speed Triple 1050. Here we go, let's see how much. So, I paid 4,100 pounds for it, and I sold it for 2,800 pounds, and I will try and find a black one because I think that would be the most desirable. Mine had the arrow exhaust as well. Okay, the cheapest one in black with arrow exhaust, the cheapest is 4,000 pounds. That's the cheapest. And I sold mine for 2,800 pounds. That's the same year as mine. It's black and it's got the arrow exhaust and it's 4,000 pounds, but they carry on. You know, you could be paying more than that, but the cheapest one I can find from the bug eye model is four grand. There's another one here. 4,500 similar to mine. Another 4,750, same, same mileage as mine. Arrow cans, just like mine. 4,800 pounds, like mine. You know, we're getting up to five grand now. Five grand, same year, same, same mileage as mine. Five grand. And I sold mine for 2,850 pounds around about four years ago or something. I sold it for 2,800 four years ago. Now the cheapest with my spec is 4,000 pounds. So there's money I could have made if, if I would have had multiple motorbikes and just, just held on to them. Just wait until the market's there, not being a ridiculous four seller just giving away for peanuts, but had a few bikes, calmly maybe put them up for sale if I think the market's right. And if people don't want to offer the price I'm not willing to accept, fine, let them walk away. It's all about, the attitude when it comes to selling, all about not being a forced seller. So there are two bikes, just two, I picked off the top of my head that I would have made significant money off both. I would have been two and a half thousand pounds up if I would have held on to those and sold them at the right time without being a forced seller. That makes a huge difference. Okay, I'm moving on, Stephen, to the second bit. My second question. My current bike is a Himalayan and I love it. I love that you can thrash it on country roads. It reminds me of the fun I had during my youth on low-powered bikes. Do you think older, more experienced bikers will follow my route back to lower capacity bikes? Or do you think that ego will prevent most of them from giving up their monster adventure and sports bikes? I think, Stephen, just from hearing from a lot of people, it's, it's your, your first... Your first thought is correct. I have a huge amount of, uh, of riders over 50, 60, 55 years old getting back into biking and, and looking at these bikes, just like, say, the Himalayan, the, the classic 350, uh, the Scram 411. Huge amount of bikers now looking to these. But the thing, the thing that I like most about it is that it's such a broad spectrum. You know, I think there's there's a huge amount to be said for these these lower powered bikes, and whether you're 22 years old or 70 years 70 years old, or you just want a bit of 
light-hearted fun. They appeal to everyone. It's such a broad spectrum. I think, I really, really think that more people, including experienced bikers now, are starting to really see the appeal of the likes of the Royal Enfield Himalayans. So for me personally, I think egos are very slightly becoming a little bit of a, a thing of the past now. I, I, I definitely see that happening. I mean, I've been guilty of it. I remember when I bought my Triumph Speed Triple, I thought, why, well, I can't buy this Street Triple, the, the 675cc model. I need to have the 1000cc. I've got to have the 1000cc. That was the only requirement for me, for my bike when I bought my Speed Triple. It had to be a 1000cc. And now I look back, why? I ha now I genuinely, I mean it, I have no idea why I thought I needed a 1000cc bike. Oh, I, I mean, I know why. I thought it was the cool thing to do, to say oh, I've got a 1000. But I have no idea why I thought that was the way you had to have a cool bike for it to be a thousand cc plus. I really think times are changing now. I really honestly do. Stephen, I'll leave it there. That was a, a very interesting way to finish. So thank you so much for sharing your, your input and also pictures of your bikes. Thank you so much everyone for listening to this week's episode. Thank you to XL Moto for sponsoring this week's episode. Have an amazing week all and I will speak to you next week.